Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's Thursday, September 30, 2021. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting live from New York. Morocco's role in powering the UK. The nation of Morocco, which recently established closer diplomatic and economic ties with Israel and began welcoming direct Israel and LL flights in Marrakesh in July, in accordance with the pact the two nations signed last year as part of the Abraham Accords, looks poised to take the next big step in the strengthening of its ties with the West. Morocco World News reported on September 26 on the plans that Simon Morish, the founder and CEO of X-Links, has been developing to construct the longest power cable in the world, extending 3,800 kilometers underwater from wind and solar energy generators in the Guaman Oud Noum region, roughly in the middle of Morocco, to the UK, where, Moorish claims, it will provide power to 7 million homes. The article quotes Moorish praising the benefits of a system that can provide renewable energy to homes in the UK independently of weather patterns there. The Envision power cable is part of a larger plan to triple the UK's interconnector power sources by 2030. Besides the expanded business for Morocco's renewable energy sector, the project will generate thousands of jobs in the UK if all goes as planned, as X-Links establishes its own cable manufacturer, XLCC. This news comes on the heels of a development reported by Morocco World News in March 2021 that looks likely to integrate the energy networks of Morocco and Portugal. Elalink, a firm whose primary shareholder is the Marguerite II Equity Fund, plans to connect the two nations via an optical submarine cable that can transmit 100 terabits per second. Though Elalink is not the first company to get into this business, the Atlantis II cable has joined Portugal and Argentina since 2000. Elalink has significant experience here. It is the company responsible for a 6,000-kilometer cable of similar design joining Europe and South America. A cable of this length costs a reported 150 million euros to set up, but the price seems to be well worth it from the standpoint of efficient energy delivery. The many writers in the last century who praised the beauty and charm of Morocco seem to have left out of their analysis the as-yet unmeasured potential of the country's natural resources which stand to bring Morocco and Western nations closer together while helping maintain sustainable biospheres and foster economic opportunities for all parties involved. The question stands as to what other areas of the world have as yet underutilized potential for projects that unite such seemingly disparate goals. Australia and Nauru strike a deal. Many people in September 2021, on hearing the phrase refugee crisis or border emergency, will naturally think of the widely reported inundation of points on Texas' southern border by migrants, many of them Haitian, seeking asylum in the U.S. On the other side of the world, another highly controversial refugee drama unfolds. 
The tiny Central Pacific Island nation of Nauru, which has roughly 12,000 residents and no official capital, has long been a dumping ground for refugees seeking entry to Australia. At Australia's behest, Nauru has kept the refugees in a detention center on the island where conditions are reportedly ghastly and human rights abuses abound, as men, women, and children wait months or even years for the processing of their claims. Maintaining this prison may not make Nauru the envy of the world, but the little nation has been desperate for money since the deposits of lime phosphate, whose export was the primary if not the sole source of its revenue for many years, began to run out. Now, as The Guardian has reported in its edition of September 24, Australia has reached a deal with Nauru for the indefinite prolongation of the detention center. The 108 people currently held there may not stay locked up forever, but the prison will continue to operate and receive new asylum seekers as needed. The Guardian is certainly no fan of the detention center, and the policy of diverting refugees to it as their claims undergo lengthy and infuriating bureaucratic review. Its article reminds readers of an expose published in the same newspaper in 2016, which brought to light internal accounts of violence, including rape, child abuse, and suicide attempts within the facility. But the article also quotes both Australia's Home Affairs Minister, Kate Andrews, and Nauru's president, Lionel Anjamia, making positive comments about the deal between Nauru and Australia. Saying this can get you disinvited to cocktail parties, but the detention facility, for all the abuses that mar it, does play a role in discouraging illegal immigration and ensuring the processing of claims in an orderly manner consistent with Australia's laws. If guards at the facility have committed crimes, there are mechanisms for dealing with such abuses. The existence of such abuses in no way detracts from the necessity of processing claims for asylum carefully, intelligently, and with a full awareness that some refugees trying to enter Australia come from parts of the world where radical jihad has inspired people who have gone on to commit horrific terror attacks in Europe, the United States, and, yes, Australia. Refugees must be screened. No nation can exist without borders, and borders themselves are useless without the tough, fair, and humane enforcement of immigration laws. PG&E gets taken to court again. Some companies, like some people, just can't stay out of trouble. Evan Simmons' September 25 report in the California Globe details how the Shasta County District Attorney's Office has charged Pacific Gas and Electric, commonly known as PG&E, with 11 felonies, including four counts of manslaughter, in the aftermath of the catastrophe known as the Zog Fire. PG&E only just emerged from bankruptcy, resulting from having to pay $13.5 billion to the victims of the 2018 blaze. And that is but one of the higher-profile legal troubles to have beset the utility in recent years. The Zog Fire began in September 2020 near the town of Ego in Shasta County and soon engulfed 56,338 acres in both Shasta and Tahama counties. The fire caused four deaths and wrecked 204 buildings. Cal Fire's investigation led to a finding that a tree fell on PG&E power lines, sparking a blaze that quickly grew. But even before Cal Fire reached that determination, Simmons recounts, 150 people got together and filed a lawsuit in Shasta County Superior Court in December 2020 
targeting PG&E. Of course, from PG&E's viewpoint, it is not the company's fault that a tree fell on a power line. But the two counties involved charged that PG&E failed to act after local authorities marked the tree in question for removal two years before. PG&E maintains that a subsequent finding that it was okay to leave the tree in place renders the earlier judgment immaterial. Last week, Shasta County District Attorney Stephanie Bridget found that PG&E was criminally liable and guilty of negligence in the deaths of the four people and the severe injury of a firefighter. Bridget said that PG&E will have to pay hefty fines for each of the four people who died. Simmons' article quotes PG&E's CEO, Patty Poppy, acknowledging that this latest PG&E-involved fire was a tragedy, but denying that PG&E committed any crime. The CEO's legal strategy, such as it is, is unlikely to prove very effective if you believe another source quoted in the article, former arson investigator Oscar Chavez, who sees the deaths in this unfortunate case as something of a game-changer. In Chavez's view, legal cases against utilities typically do not turn out well for the latter when they involve deaths. Even if Poppy's argument carried the day in court, the objections to it, not least of all the moral and ethical objections, are obvious. PG&E, which has been in operation since 1905 and has been through bankruptcy twice in this millennium alone, is not exactly a stranger to environmental issues in California and particularly the circumstances in which accidents and disasters can come about. It had received warning about the problematic tree years before the Zog fire. The latest PG&E imbroglio brings to mind another recent disaster, namely the collapse of a 136-unit tower in Surfside, Florida in June 2021. In that case, the condo association that bore responsibility for maintenance and repairs in Champlain Towers South could have heeded a Morobito consultant's report dating to 2018, as well as the results of a 2020 inspection, spelling out the structural weaknesses and dangers of the building. Although some repairs were underway literally just before the disaster, the condo board did not take the far-reaching actions that would have been necessary to keep residents out of a dangerous building until it was possible to address all the concerns raised by Morobito's firm. It seems they were not keen on doing anything too dramatic that might cause the loss of rental income. Whatever the explanation, 98 people paid with their lives. In that case, too, one might argue that, from a strictly legal standpoint, the managers of the property did not commit a crime. But in the Surfside disaster, as in the Zog fire, someone should have had responsibility for anticipating any and all risks to life and limb and taking aggressive action to counter those risks. Structural failures and building collapses involving scores of injuries and deaths were far from unheard of in the United States or abroad at the time of the disaster. Someone somewhere should have known that it is not permissible to ignore even the remotest possible dangers, let alone those as real and immediate as those for which precedent can be found in case after case over the years and decades. The Heroic Defense of Singapore 
Sometimes tales of heroism are absurdly inflated. At other times, the sacrifices of past generations can come to seem all the more awe-inspiring when you realize just how inadequate were the resources entrusted to them, given the challenges they faced. John Diamond's article in the October 2021 issue of World War II History magazine, Two Battles at Singapore's Bukit Timah, situates the reader in a time and place, Singapore in the early months in 1942, when desperate British, Australian, Dutch, and Indian troops tried to block the lightning moves of the Japanese army down the Malay Peninsula and into Singapore, which ultimately fell to the forces of the wily and ruthless Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita on February 15, 1942, but not without a fight. The two battles in the title of Diamond's article refers to the military clash between the opposing armies and to the Battle of Wits, between Yamashita on the one hand and British Lieutenant General Arthur Percival on the other. The article is as poignant a reminder as you may ever find of the importance of the psychological component of warfare. It details how Yamashita put to use not just military maneuvers, but repeated bluffs, in order to pressure and coerce what was actually a numerically greater Allied force into surrendering. The British and Australians charged with the defense of Singapore fought heroically, what is astounding and somewhat flabbergasting about their bold resistance to the Japanese war machine is that the Allied command failed to make nearly all the investments in the defense of Singapore you might expect. The article illuminates how Yamashita used incessant artillery bombardments to foster the sense that he had vast if not unlimited resources at his disposal. It also makes fairly clear that Yamashita was able to bluff his way to victory in part because his forces had tanks and the British and Australians did not. On the Allied side, the feeling of inadequacy in the face of Japanese tanks must have run high. The British and Australians had anti-tank guns, which suggests that they fully anticipated having to fight tanks. This begs the question of why they did not have tanks of their own, particularly since, as Diamond makes clear, Allied tanks enjoyed a reputation for being better designed. In the course of the battle, Prime Minister Winston Churchill cabled Percival directly, ordering him to fight to the end and hold Singapore no matter what. Given the importance placed on this objective, the absence of the needed heavy metal is nothing short of confounding. Did later generations learn anything from the fall of Singapore? The U.S. debacle in Somalia in October 1993 suggests that not all did. The defense secretary at the time, Les Aspin, turned down a request from officers on the ground for heavy armor, perhaps wishing to foster the impression that the U.S. was helping out in Somalia and had not actually invaded the country. This may be good PR, but as military strategy, it is insane. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper.